Wow, and welcome back to our fourth episode. This is our fourth episode. I I usually don't follow through this far on projects. You know, like it's easy to do the first few things and then it's easy to lose your focus on things. But we're going to be talking about mazes and monsters today. You might know this from Tom Hanks. It's his first leading role. And it's, well... It's made for television, and I feel like that shows. Right, yeah, this is... I'm gonna be real with you folks here. Um, we both play tabletop games. Uh, I play a lot of D&D, specifically. So, we both went into this with personal feelings about the tabletop game. That this movie quite frankly, does not agree with. (laughs) It really doesn't. Um, This is one that... This movie, for all the movies that and shows and whatnot that we take seriously, this movie kind of feels like, and I took that seriously, about us. (laughs) It it, it really makes me mad. Because it is all about how, basically, D&D, any tabletop RPG is a terrible thing and for me really it's the backstory of this entire movie that helps to understand why this movie is so like infuriating yeah yeah tell us about it it's based on a real story by a lady named rona jaffe i don't know if i'm pronouncing her name correctly and because of this story i'm not really concerned if I am or not. Um, So she wrote a book based on a real life case about a guy who disappeared from Michigan State University in 1979. And I kind of feel bad picking this movie now because like the guy's big request to an investigator we'll talk about shortly was that he didn't want this like to be out there. He didn't want his personal details shared with the public. So I feel like just not use the name. There's a person who disappeared and a investigator named William Deere sort of amplified police theories that maybe because this guy played D&D, you know, that's maybe why he disappeared and you know made suicide attempts. And succeeded, unfortunately. He did, but this was after this entire event. Like, he, he disappeared into the steam tunnels, tried to kill himself, and I... The police theorized that this was like a connection and the investigator amplified that and the family talked about it. And and like, there are so many things that feel wrong because that just isn't a good reason. Like, oh, you, you did something with friends. That's the reason why you died. And I looked into the details and no, maybe it's because he was a child prodigy who went to Michigan State University in 1979 at age 16 for computer science. Like, I'm not a computer science expert, actually, but, like, 1979, that's not a... That's, like, the frontier of computer science, isn't it? Um, of its popularity, where, yes, you could, like, this is something you could go to college for, and everyone knew at this point that computers were the future. They weren't just some super extremely specific high-tech thing that cost millions and millions of dollars they were starting to enter people's houses. Okay, okay. Rich people. Uh, and so, this was a time where it was very clear, computers are the future. Yes, and that that's a theme that is in the movie. And that's why I found it interesting with the backstory, is that 
person that was affected theoretically by D&D, but absolutely not at all, was age 16 going for computer science at a university. And that is absolutely a lot of pressure, in my opinion. I mean, I felt pressure taking a lower load than other people going to college, like, when I first went to college. And so, I'm obviously not sort of child prodigy or anything, but (laughs) I did go uh, to college for programming and then later for IT, and I did, like, university online. And that, combined with work meant that I had very little time for anything. Uh, And I was always under constant pressure. But that is still far less than this child was put under, I would say. Yeah, that that, that is fair. And I do remember your stories from our episode, A Town Called Panic. Look it up, guys. You've already seen it. We got real personal. Um, Yeah, like, yeah, you were under a lot of pressure. And... This character certainly is. I I just wanted to add, like, so this movie came out then in 1982. The book had been released by Rona Jaffe like a year prior to this movie. And so it was really capitalizing on the sensation. I remember reading that Rona Jaffe specifically was like, I want to take advantage of this plot because everybody else is going to write something about this. You may as well be the first one to do it. Um, and so 1982 is when the movie came out. And then... Yeah, I think getting that timeline is very important here. Yeah. Because this disappearance, like with the child, which started all this, that got the investigator involved, was in 1979. In 1980, a year later, that is when this child then succeeded in killing himself. Yes. Then two years later, in 1982... The movie Mazes and Monsters featuring Tom Hanks came out. That is a very short time frame here. And then in 1984, William Deere, the private investigator, who this guy came to, like, in full confidence, being like, this is why I disappeared. Please don't talk to people about it. Don't, don't like, spread anything. Just, this is why I did it. Keep my secret. William Deere just released a book called The Dungeon Master, 1984, four years after the death, where he explains that I haven't read it, but from what I've read online, his claim is pretty much based on absolutely nothing. So he amplified a theory that was poorly placed. So much speculation on his part. And I don't know, that that just, everything about that makes me angry because speculation is not fact. It's just a theory, and the fact that it spreads like wildfire just makes me angry. And of course, 1984, that's also the year that Jack Chick created the religious anti-Dungeons and Dragons comic that mirrored this narrative. Um, Darkest Dungeons? No, Dark Dungeons. So, I will say that we will definitely like dive more into the propagation of speculation and wild baseless accusations later on in the episode. Yes. But one thing I will say, this is the only positive thing I will say before we get into the movie about any of this, is that have you looked at that Jack Chick comic? Many times. Yeah, did you see the uh, DM screen? It actually looked kind of cool. 
oh no that's actually like the one thing i haven't looked at i always look at their faces because they're so contorted and like (laughs) so evil it just it gets me all turned up i mean there's all sorts of magical things in that comic anyways yeah yeah you can see it on page three of it like if you look it up like and it does say like dark dungeons on it and you can tell it's like oh wow he this guy really put some effort to coming up with like a cool like tm screen i'm sure he got it from something but it's like and like a lot of it is like covered up by like a text box but you can see where it's like okay yeah i can see where this, this is actually kind of cool and this is the only positive thing i will say about all of this awful history wait so before we jump into the plot of this movie that we're going to talk about if there was a system made by Jack Chick, would you give it a try? No, but I would look at the art. <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into the plot. I It's been a few weeks for me. I watched this and I raged the entire time. I threw a blanket over my head at one point. And so a lot of this is very hazy for me. So, Yeah, I got you. Don't worry. So, the movie called opens with uh, emergency services <laughs> responding to the disappearance of a college student in a cave near the college. <laughs> That's so gosh darn funny. It's just, it's just, it's such an, it's such a serious intro that you can't take it seriously, knowing what's going to happen. <laughs> well, I will say, this is my favorite part of the entire movie. Okay, okay, go on. I'll, I'll dive into it in just a moment. But, so, the emergency services are responding to a disappearance, and a news reporter asks the detective on the scene what's going on. And the detective reports that a game of mazes and monsters, which is a D&D analog <laughs> in the movie, uh, was being played and got out of hand. Uh, the reporter then uh, goes on live and describes what the game is, about how it's a game where people take on problems in their lives in a fantasy world. And it is possible for the distinction between reality and fantasy to disappear. So, that's stupid. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's really setting a tone. Yeah, it's clearly written by people who don't know D&D. Um, yes. But... Like I said, this is my favorite part of the entire movie, because throughout the movie, like in the first half, you're waiting to see who it ends, who ends up getting lost in the cave, and what happened to them. And then later, when the movie catches up to the cave, you're entirely on the ride of, like, what the heck is going to happen next? The answer is a lot of boring, and this is the last positive thing I have to say about this entire movie. And this is to save you from watching the movie. Yes. It's just basic screenwriting. Um, uh, yeah, it, it very much is a made-for-TV movie. Yeah. Everything about it. Everything. Yeah. Uh, the movie uh, then goes on to introduce the principal characters. And Adam, uh, you want to just describe these characters to us real quick? Yeah. <laughs> There's like four major characters um, that I could think of. And like I didn't even care about the investigators or whatnot. Oh, they so don't matter. Oh, yeah, they don't matter. There's Daniel, the rich, blonde, white guy. And I really like him because he's like the stereotype of what you think might be the villain. But he's just like this, uh, like, 
chiseled, like, oh, yeah, I'm probably going to go to the fraternity my dad went to, white guy, and he wants to program video games, mm. <laughs> but his parents, but his parents want him to program technology because video games will never be profitable. Right. <laughs> and so that's like the one I bit in the movie where you can tell the writers can see, like, yeah, that they probably will be profitable. That's also such a play on the person that they're profiting off of suicide. Yes, is, absolutely. Like, oh yeah, computer science. So uh, maybe what went wrong? Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe he wanted to make video games. I mean, what really is the difference between Dungeons and Dragons and video games? It's all the same thing. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and the second character, who won't sound familiar based on the details I've said, is J.J. Brockway. He's a 16-year-old boy genius who wears funny hats in each scene. Which is one of my favorite things in the movie, because it's something that just makes me feel like, they really don't care, so why should I? Like you alluded to, scene from the beginning is seen to anyone who knows the history, the scene's obviously the child who the entire story is based on so them introducing him as an almost comical character and yeah with the hats it's really off-putting if you know the history they open his character with being like oh yeah he's a 16 year old boy genius going to a university that's not really appropriate but then his mom is overbearing and that's a very interesting detail to me is they introduce his character as having his mom being overbearing, removing like everything from his room and remodeling it every time he comes back. And it's like, wow, it's like they're hitting it right on the nose and not getting why this person might not have felt very happy about this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but yeah, crazy. He's, he's played for jokes. Most of the movie, um, generally knowledgeable, ambitious, um, and then that brings us to the third character, Kate Finch. She's the girl of the movie, and I'm not trying to be a misogynist. She's just, yeah, they use her as the girl, and she falls in love with Tom Hanks's character, which we'll get to next. And yeah, like, I, I want to look at this movie and say she's not just the girl character, hard air quotes, but she's like the analog of self-love and that might make sense more as we talk about the plot but it's like the the idea of a character like if every if if all four of these characters are the same person and it's just all like abstracts of their minds like one person is the aspect of oh he went to computer science one person is the aspect of oh he was 16 year old and whatever perhaps kate finch is self-love and that brings us, because I don't want to talk about this anymore, and this should be edited out, probably. Uh, that brings us to Robbie Wheeling, the best-named character in the movie, who's played by Tom Hanks, who has emotional problems stemming from his brother running away on his birthday on Halloween, I think, as well as his addiction to tabletop RPGs. Yep. He's opened with like his parents being like, okay, don't do uh, not drugs anymore. It's, it's uh, M&M. Don't do M&M anymore. It's such a weird, weird situation. But those are the four characters. You have Daniel, rich blonde guy, Kate Finch, the girl, J.J. Brockway, the 16-year-old boy genius, and Robbie Wheeling, emotionally problemed man. Mm -hmm. And so, 
at college, the group sans Tom Hanks, Robbie, is looking for a new player for their game of Mazes and Monsters. And (laughs) the most relatable scene in the movie plays where (laughs) JJ is sitting in the cafeteria watching people pass by his flyer uh, looking for a new player for their game. He gets more and more disappointed as people just ignore it. And then when Robbie sees a flyer, JJ immediately jumps at the opportunity and gets very (laughs) pushy for Robbie to join. Yes, he does. Uh, Robbie declines, but then when JJ tells him to come to a party, Robbie accepts that. That's not that's not a video game. That's that's not a game. That's that's fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, you at, could go to a social event. Yeah, and at the party, Robbie meets the girl of the group, which I will always say with a U instead of an I for this movie, because yeah, sure, that's the amount of personality they give this poor character. And they immediately hit it off uh, when he admits he used to play Eminem at level 9, which is the same level as the group. Wait, does that mean you can be a DM at that point? Yes, that is what it means. You're finally able to make your own scenarios as well as your own fantasies, Robbie points out. Whoa, I wish I was that high of level, but I'm just a level 3. This is something we might want to like go more into later, but <laughs> I guess we we can go into it now. How very clear it is that the writers don't know D and D. How how would anybody ever start a group? Exactly. But that, and we can get into it more later. But that's like the parasitic nature of the rumor. It's like, yeah, only people who are in the group can bring you into the group like it's it's a cult thing yeah but it, it doesn't make sense logistically yeah and so in this situation your level is assigned to you the player not your character <laughs> so stupid so what your character can do and what you, the player, are allowed to do is determined by how deep into this game you are and how much real-life experience with the game you have. That brings up the issue of, yeah, how do people actually start groups? Like you said, since you have to be level 9 in order to create your own scenarios... Someone had to be level 9 at some point to begin. Uh, was it Mr. Mary Mimax, who then had to go and like gr- like GM for a whole bunch of people so they all got to level 9 so they could then spread the cult around? Wait, it's make your own scenarios. Mm-hmm. So you could use other people's scenarios. Until you're level 9. That is the implication, but we don't see them ever looking at other people's scenarios. That's true. There's no analysis that goes that deep in this movie. Yeah, I don't think they ever thought <sighs> about that. I think you just thought about this more than they did. Yeah, I, well, I certainly did. But I, I really do love that, like, two layers of pressure. Like, 
because I've done that to people before where it's like, oh, you want to play this game with me? And they're like, eh, no, I don't think I'm interested. And it's like, oh, you also like Lord of the Rings. Do you want to play Lord of the Rings, both dice? They're like, oh, yeah, that the second time you've asked me this is the proper way to do it. Right. Which means I got a critical success on my persuasion roll. But um, you used inspiration to reroll the dice. And they really do hit him with the. Uh, Oh yeah, it's a social party. We're all hanging out. This is positive, good stuff. This isn't your addiction at all. And and I relate it to, like, they treat it like alcohol. Like, if somebody's trying to recover from that, you don't invite them to the bar. You, or, but you might invite them to, like, a board game party, but then they have alcohol there, and it's like that slippery slope there. Trying to seduce somebody into the addiction they very clearly stated they have, and also their mommy told them to not get back into it. It's, I don't know. It's just, it's such a weirdly psychological scene there. Yeah. And he finally does relent and agrees to play the game when Kate, the girl tells him he should play because she plays. too. And he's like, well, it could be that bad if you're doing it <laughs> too. It's like, well, yeah, with my alcohol metaphor there, it's like, yeah, it can't be bad if I'm drinking with a, woman girl <laughs> yeah she's pretty so it must be okay so they do end up playing then yes and they do you want to describe the scene of them finally playing mazes and monsters well i mean you apparently watched a better version than i did and the version i watched was very very dimly lit so every scene appeared very very dark and so when the D&D game came around and they're playing by candlelight, I'm like, why? Why does anybody do that? Nobody does that. Okay, yeah. If you're in the audience and you're being like, oh, I played Call of Cthulhu with my, my GM and he did a really good job and he put like candles and everything. Yeah, that's fine. That makes sense. But nobody just plays their standard D&D games in a room with no lights except for a few candles. And okay, even if that's true, even if you do do that, like, you don't do that for a movie. I couldn't see anything and I just... I got so frustrated with this movie being dark all the time and then they're playing in the dark and it's like, well, okay, so you didn't even bother to light the movie, at least on my end. I, 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 I was very much writhing in my chair and I'm actually starting to get flashbacks, even though it's been weeks ago, of just being so frustrated looking at the movie. That even looking at them playing D and D, I felt no love. I was just like, "You're playing a lie." <laughs> I'm glad I asked you for that uh, because, yeah, like you said, my version I could see a little bit brighter. Oh well, good. That, that's that's what I've heard that you could see more than me. Yeah, maybe it's just my TV. Uh, the brightness <sighs> levels are different. Uh, so you said you watched this uh, from like a DVD maybe so vhs vhs that checks out and that's that that really i really felt it there yeah so i did have a brighter view and i could tell you you missed absolutely nothing uh it was so dark that they wouldn't have been able to see like their character sheets let alone like the faces of the dice that they were rolling 
that, that, that's the thing is you need to be able to see and i'm all for candles i'm not against candles but i think you need like a central light that illuminates the table enough and in fact i'd say the best lighting if you want to go for atmosphere is a bright central light you can have candles around but then if you're wreathed in darkness around you that that that's that's great for call of cthulhu you should be able to see your character sheets and see the scenes and see the movie they call it a movie for a reason because you're able to see it it's moving yeah, but yeah it's you hard can to see, see all the the moves what's going on here you can see the flickering of some lights yeah and i don't care about flickering lights <laughs> as they're playing they also introduce their characters and i believe you have uh written down like everyone like plays as some of them <laughs> so there's two characters that are sort of the gm or the game master dungeon master whatever um so daniel is sometimes the gm and he plays another role that i could pick up kate finch the girl um is always the warrior which i thought was an interesting choice um because i don't know it's 1982 i wasn't born back then and i always think of like feminist movements that i've read about Playing the warrior, 1982, as a woman at a university might be a very satisfying role that that one might not like be able to experience in other like situations. There, J.J. Um, Brockway sometimes the GM, otherwise plays something else. But Robbie Wheeling, Tom Hanks, plays the cleric. It's a very interesting role to me above all else, because that's sort of the role nobody wants to play in my experience nobody really wants to be the healer yeah especially not all dnd especially if whatever they had at 1982 yeah well specifically uh, in this movie he's called a holy man okay well yeah <laughs> holy man cleric yeah. yeah i mean he's a cleric yeah but, and <laughs> so jj is a sprite a sprite yep that what yep which actually kind of checks out with the original D&D, because back then yeah. only humans had classes elves were just elves and dwarves were just dwarves that's right that's weird and slightly racist but weird most of oh. all oh yeah it was weird but very homogenistic but yeah so sprites just being his entire like character like race class combo that it does actually kind of check out. Do you do you know what Daniel played? So yeah, later when Daniel uh, goes to play in JJ's game that we will talk about, uh, yeah, is never said. Uh, he seems to be some <laughs> sort of martial class in some way, maybe yeah. a fighter, yeah. maybe what we would consider like a paladin, maybe a ranger, yeah. something like that. I would guess fighter or paladin, yeah. I'm not sure paladins were a thing at that point. I don't know either. Like, dwarves are a class, not a... It's it's a weird system that we're in, and the people don't understand it. So, probably yeah. they had two fighters, and a holy man. Not a bad combo. I cannot believe, though, that they didn't have a single uh, magic user, which is what it was originally called. So they could have someone throwing around cards saying, Fireball! Fireball! But, so, the next scene, uh, after 
they play uh, Jesus Monsters by Candlelight. Uh, the movie Gosh. then uh, montages the growing relationship between Robbie and Kate. And then Robbie tells her about his brother Hall, who ran away from home uh, one night. Uh, you reminded me is on Halloween. With Robbie's help to New York City. Hall promised to stay in touch, but he never did. And Robbie has had nightmares about his brother ever since. Wait, Hall on Halloween? Yes, Hall on Halloween. That's like the laziest writing possible. There's a lot of that in this movie. Because it's the first few letters of Halloween. <sighs> yeah, okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I can't pick on this movie too much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, we can pick on this movie. <laughs> well, it does a terrible job on its own. <laughs> You're right. We can. We don't have to, but we will. The movie continues, <laughs> and we find out that JJ is suicidal in a really weird way. Uh, where he fantasizes about different ways to kill himself that will make people notice and remember him. That's... Wow, I forgot about that part that it was notice and remember him. Yeah, because that's extra, just like messed up. Considering the guy was like, "Please do not tell my story to anybody." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll write a book about it. Yeah, a... and wow. this movie then has him as openly suicidal and excited about the prospect of dying for people to remember him. <sighs> yeah, that's a totally a tasteful scene yes and he concludes that dying in the cave near the school is a great idea and heads out at night to look around it and so the next time they play mazes and monsters jj intentionally makes his character fall into a trap to kill his character yeah and everybody's like that's messed up right (laughs) yeah it's like that's a stupid thing to do (laughs) like kate straight up says because you could literally just, like, talk to people and be like, well, he's the sprite, so he just flew into the pit trap. So, going back into, like, how they clearly know nothing about D&D, throughout this movie, they don't actually seem to roll any dice. The players say what they are going to do, and the maze controller <laughs> straight up tells them what they do. Like, what happens. The MC. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no dexterity save to, like, notice the traps and then, like, try to get out of the way or anything. It's just, you no know, instantly dead. Yeah, there's no, like, can I roll spot hidden or no, roll my notice nothing. check? Just straight up kills them. I am God and you will do what happens to you. Yes, that is almost exactly word for word what they say, like, about maze controllers and... <laughs> And so, with his character dead, J.J. introduces a revolutionary idea of how to play Maze of the Monsters, tabletop games. A logical extension of the game that no one has ever done before. (laughs) You want to know what they're going to do? Dress up as their characters and play the game in person in the cave with himself as the DM. Whoa, what is this new thing? I've never heard of this before. Yeah, because no one's ever LARPed before, of course. And just forget Renaissance fairs and historical battle reenactments. 
the writers okay, of this like, movie were the first ones who ever thought of the idea of LARPing. When was that like established though? Like I I don't know the history of those things, but like I really do wonder when was LARPing a first like first a thing? W- when did people first start LARPing and doing Renaissance fairs and I don't know because from my perspective, it's like yeah, no, you're not inventing a new thing. You're inventing LARPing. It's like seeing somebody be like, oh, if I put some peanut butter in molten chocolate and then let it dry, it'll be a chocolate peanut butter cup. It's like, well, yeah. Uh-huh. That's, so that's historical thing. battles, like reenactments, I think yes. have literally always been a thing. Um, really? Yeah, that has been a thing forever. But uh, like the Renaissance fairs, like at least in America, started like, as yeah. early as like the early like nineteen sixties. Okay, okay, yeah, that that's that that seems like a good bar to have in, in this case, like um, for when people might get the idea of dressing up in costumes and playing their characters. If Renaissance fairs are a thing for twenty something years, okay. Then... And so I just did a quick Google search. The first LARPs were run in the late 1970s, inspired by role-playing games and genre fiction. The activity gained international popularity during the 1980s when this movie came out. Yeah. So, the issue I have with all of this isn't so much that they decided to LARP, or that this was going to be a new thing. Uh, that they're going to start doing. My issue with it is more that they really push throughout the movie how smart J.J. is and how knowledgeable he is about so much stuff. And Mm -hmm. he is the one who introduces this, who is the one who's most likely to have heard about LARPing and whatnot. Uh, And could have then come to a conclusion that that's a cool idea, that's what we should do. But instead, they present it as he came up with this. He's so, innovative. Yeah. That's why I think this is stupid. Yeah, well, yeah, it reeks of Mary Sue um, with a 16-year-old boy genius, but that feels terrible knowing how the introduction of this episode went. Mm-hmm. It really reeks as the writers thought that they were super smart. And they didn't have to do research. They didn't have to look at look up anything. Anyways, so they go to the cave that JJ has prepared. And generally, they have a great time. Of course, for Robbie, who, after they split the party... <laughs> and you never split the party. Imagines yeah, that a monster ways. called a Gorval approaches him menacingly. His screams brings everyone to him, but then they continue playing the game and leave in mostly high spirits. Do you want to describe to us what a Gorval is? You know, the classic D&D monster? Yeah, yeah, the classic D&D monster that we all know. Um, yeah, apologies to anybody, the majority of our audience that's like, oh yeah, well, Gorval, I know what that is. Yeah, yeah everyone very... knows a Gorval. I know, but just for the rare person who's like, oh, I don't know what a Gorval is. <laughs> Look, I got you. I'm I'm backing you up here. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Yeah, so a Gorval is 
a green-bodied thing that's like muscular. It's it's a muscle man, but green with a lizard face. A lizard folk. It's a lizard folk, but without a tail, I guess, and without a body, and it only exists in your nightmares. So, for those of you who are familiar with D and D, the closest comparison uh, is going to be. And this is going to be a deep cut for people specifically who play D anD. d A is a UNT Malison. Um, but what? for those who don't know what those like words together okay, mean, I thought I knew more things, but apparently I don't. Yeah, I don't blame you for that one. Uh, they are literally like bodybuilders with like snake heads. Uh, but in this situation, it's sort of like a draconic lizard man head. It's silly. Yeah, it's very silly and he doesn't have any attacks. Correct. So, that night, Robbie has a dream where he is told by a robed figure that he must be a chaste holy man in order to reach the two towers and meet the Great Hall. Oh, Lord. The Great Hall... Come on. Very next day, Robbie then breaks up with Kate and distances himself from the rest of the group. And he doesn't even explain it to her. Yep, he really doesn't. Uh, he just says, yeah, I love you. I just can't touch you anymore. And she's like, well, uh, is everything okay? And he's like, be gone. He doesn't say be gone, but it's the general vibe. It's like, it's such a weird scene where he doesn't exp- he doesn't explain what's wrong and that frustrates me so much it's just like no i I just can't do this anymore and it's like but why i can't do this anymore yeah it screams idiot plot makes me so angry idiot plot yeah that's a good word for it and so the i'm saving us some time skipping over some scenes here but over time kate feels that he is trying to be more and more like his mazes and monsters character and after a Halloween party, Robbie disappears, and the group deduces that he must have gone into the cave. And just to save us a whole bunch of time, they look into the caves and don't find him. That takes like 20 minutes of this movie. Yeah, you just cut out a lot of time. There's yeah. a lot of screaming in the cave of, Hello? Are you there? Hello? Oh yeah, I'm going to save us, continue to save us time, because this second half of this movie... It really drags. Yeah. Really drags. It really does. Uh, And so, they do not find him. So, they call the police and report Robbie's disappearance. We then catch Mm. up to the start of the movie, and the police haven't found him in the cave. They tell the group that either he's not in the cave, or he got really deep into it and is most certainly dead. The group solves the mystery. Again, I'm skipping a lot of scenes here. Holy crap. A lot of unimportant scenes. Yeah. Just terrible scenes. This it, this movie is, I think, 80 minutes long about? It's an hour and 40 minutes. Hour 40. A hundred minutes long. It could have easily been a one hour movie. Without really cutting could. Without cutting any dialogue. Yeah, there's a lot of long, dark scenes. Yes. And people talk about stuff that ultimately does not matter. But anyways, the group solves the mystery that the Great Hall isn't a place, but a person, Robbie's brother. However, 
Kate doesn't recall Robbie telling her that Hall went to New York. So they still have no idea where he is. But they do figure out he's probably not in the cave. And then we yeah. finally meet back up with Robbie, who's now wandering the streets of New York City, looking for the Great Hall or the Two Towers. There, he's jumped by a couple of guys who are up to no good, starting making trouble in the neighborhood. Robbie hallucinates that one of the men is a Gorville and stabs him, seemingly to death. The yeah, shock everybody's of favorite character, Gorville. Yeah, Gorville comes back. <laughs> Everyone loves Gorville. That should be the next sitcom. <laughs> the shock of it it's knocks Gorville. him. The shock of it knocks him out of his daze, and he realizes what's going on and calls Kate from a nearby phone booth. Uh, Kate tells him to go to JJ's house there and to stay until they can meet back up. He does not do this. Instead, he wanders around a whole lot more until he goes into the sewers and meets a mostly friendly homeless man who tells him where he can find the two towers. Yes. Yeah, that's his direction. And the homeless guy, I really like the scene, actually. It's one of the better acted scenes is Tom Hanks with this homeless guy and the guy's being understanding and sort of aware that Tom Hanks is acting like a crazy person. So it's very tactful. Yeah, and he just sort of goes along with uh, Robbie, like his yeah. craziness, because at this point, yeah, he realizes, oh yeah, this guy is crazy. But but in a very understanding kind of way, like self-protective, but also like... like we're all crazy down here. We've all got problems. He does help him, though. Yes. He tells him where he can find the Twin Towers. And so... Robbie goes there, and again, saving us time, <laughs> the rest of the group... No, hold up, hold up. They're all meeting up together, but this is like a, what, 10, 12 minute scene? It is so long. Like, what do they do, though? But what do they do in this scene? They run around. Like, on floors that look the same? Of a it... tall building? Yes, so they deduced that the Twin Towers was not just some random Lord of the Rings reference, which <laughs> I'm impressed the writers knew what Lord of the Rings was in 1982. They realized it's not that, it's the Twin Towers. It takes them a long time to realize that the Twin Towers are the two towers in New York City. One of them is a native to New York City. It's excruciating. And so, they go to the Twin Towers. Robbie's there at the Twin Towers. They run around for a long time looking for Robbie, who's... Wait, wait, wait. But are they on the same floor when they first meet, or are they on different floors? Oh, so... good lord. <laughs> I'm sorry, go on. No, you're right. It drags. It goes so long. I got so angry, just like, oh, wait, we're on this floor. Are you on that floor? Oh, no, he's... And they cut to him. Like, it, it's like the movie is taunting you yes. at this point. Like, he's on this floor, they're on that floor, they're on that floor now, but he's on this floor. And just, I I may have thrown a blanket on my head in rage <laughs> at many points in this movie. I did, actually. But go on. God, how does it end? How, does it end? Uh, eventually. Uh, so, he gets to the top of the Twin Tower, because there's because you could do that as 1980-whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he makes it to the top, but they get to him in time just before he's about to jump off uh, because he says he has a flight spell. And 
yeah, that's reason enough yeah. to jump off from the twin towers. Do do clerics ever get fly? I thought that was like a wizard or sorcerer only spell. Um, I can say in fifth edition of D anD D, no clerics do not get fly. Yeah, that doesn't seem like a cleric spell. Yeah, they do get polymorph, um, which is yeah. a higher level spell. Uh, which he said they flight. can then turn into a creature that can fly. Sure. Yeah, but I, I'll go out on a limb. I will give this movie the benefit of the doubt and say it is possible in the D and D at this time that holy magic users might be able to cast fly. I have not looked that up. I will be real with you. Yeah, okay, let's say that they could cast fly, yeah. because that's something clerics did back then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, I... yeah, so JJ, who was the last maze controller of the one for the LARPing, tells Robbie that he doesn't have enough points to cast flight. So, Robbie does not jump. Upon doing so, he realizes where he is again, just like uh, earlier, uh, after he stabs uh, the punk. And breaks down crying. And then we get a time skip. With the group going to meet back up with Robbie near the start of the next, I think, school year. One of the things that isn't clear in this movie is time change. Yes. Like, things just happen, and you're at a new scene. It's not like, oh, you went through the day, and now it's night, and now you're going to the night party. It's just, you were there at the cafeteria, and now you're at a party. Is it night? Is it the next day? Is it next week? You yeah. don't know. Yeah, I mean, things yeah, just happen. some scenes happen during the day, some scenes happen at night. It's never clear how much time has passed. It's very dreamlike in that sense. Yeah, sort of. But, yeah, so they go to uh, Robbie's parents' mansion, where he, when they meet up with him, they realize that he is still in his sort of trance, where he still believes he's in the game. So they decide to go on one last adventure, one last hurrah with Robbie to the nearby woods, I guess as a way of just saying goodbye. It's weird it's a pity adventure but there's like an added layer there though because he says oh i've been able to stay at this inn because i have a magic coin and so the kindly innkeeper and the innkeeper's wife are able to keep me here inevitably because i can just use my magic coin to pay them but it comes back to me in the morning so his character is that he's like, That's not very good for a holy man. He's betraying these nice people who are keeping him here. And it's, it's, and then that—that's when he drops things like, "But I think that there's a monster beyond the lake, and maybe we could go travel and fight that monster, and it would help them quite a bit." Uh-huh. It's like, wow, smug cleric. I uh, sorry, holy man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how the movie ends. And. I want to just comment on something that has been happening the whole movie at this point. Everybody's favorite song, Friends in This World. I don't know who it's by because you can't find it on YouTube. It's just the awful made-for-TV song that just 
keeps playing throughout the entire movie. Just this aggressive jazz and positive tunes. It's like, I, I, if there's more music on the soundtrack, I don't remember it. All I remember is this awful friends in this world song. And that's how the movie ends is going into the credits with this awful song. It's just like trying to make you feel like, Oh, they're doing a good thing for their mentally ill friend. And that. It's, it's it's not how DMT works. None of this is right. Everything about this is wrong. No, I I I dare statistics to tell me that people are like any normal person is turned into some sort of DMT addict. That's like it's offensive to me in the sense that they say a reasonably well-adjusted person or somebody with slight trauma would be turned into a suicidal or it's just it, it it absolutely bothers me the insinuations with this it is stated as a feature of the game that it is very easy and the logical next step in the game that while the game itself is not evil it is a gateway drug to losing yourself yes yeah that does seem like the the approach is the gateway drug anyways now's probably a good time for us to take a short break back say in the higher pitch that's me in a higher pitch okay that was disgusting and okay well wow that was really embarrassing i would never do that my my name's adam uh guy that is on this show and i'm the one who doesn't like to burp in front of people i used to burp all the time but when i took valtrex i didn't stop burping but i stopped burping it in opportune moments hey this is a scientist Tell us more about why this drug works. This is the worst idea. I don't know. So, Valtrex is an antiviral drug that slows the growth and spread of herpes. <laughs> Did you just come up with that stuff your head? <laughs> I'm laughing because I thought you made that up. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's the perfect comeback to that. It's like, yeah, you don't, you don't have a burping problem, dude. You, that's a herpes medication. I mean, I think right there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, I'm just a normal guy, and that's why I take Valtrex for my burping. Perfect. All right, so I suppose now we can talk about everything else. <laughs> So, yeah, what do you want to start with? What what do you want to talk about with this movie first? I feel like the big elephant in the room is the idea that D&D is some sort of weird, strange thing in, in media, especially between like the 80s and 90s. Um, and there are two episodes of TV shows that really cemented that for me not knowing D&D and anything like tabletop RPGs growing up. Like the first thing was Lizzie McGuire. I saw like 
one episode of the show and it just happened to be something about how the male cohort of the group i don't know his name but he's the goofball he gets into this board game that lizzie mcguire gets like mailed from her grandma like she doesn't like it but he loves it he gets deep into it and the entire episode is about how he keeps like spending his lunch money on these new cards or something and it's all this really like addictive narrative and the plot has lizzie and her female cohort getting him away from his addiction and it's such a weird thing because it has that same fundamental misunderstanding. And the second show that I wanted to talk about was Recess because Recess from the 90s had another like D&D episode that didn't really understand it. But I bring this up as the second one because while Lizzie McGuire treated it like an addiction, Recess treated it very favorably. And I thought that was interesting as we go into our perhaps theories here. So in recess, the main character gets injured during recess and his punishment is that he doesn't get to go to recess. He goes to the basement to recover with his broken collarbone. And there he meets a bunch of the nerdy kids, quote unquote. They give him a different name. Um, the kids who choose not to go out to recess, but instead stay indoors to play with action figures and and Legos, presumably. But they also play D&D. And though he's initially like against it, the main character eventually is like, yeah, I'll play it. Let's see how this is. And he does very well at it. And he learns a lot about it and he gets integrated in their group. And then he's like, well, now that I'm recovered, I want to bring you out to my life to, to show you the, all the good things of my life being you know, outdoors and stuff. And they eventually reveal they don't like it out there. They just like doing their thing. And the end of the episode is, yeah, he can respect that. Is he can understand why they enjoy their hobby. And why that's okay to not just be outside. And I thought that was really interesting. It's a story about acceptance, accepting other people. But the writers still don't get it quite right. Like, it's they depict it as this, like, three-layer board game where it's, like, pillars with more boards on top of it. And it's like, but who 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 does that? Who makes a Monopoly board but, like, three layers to make a D&D game? Nobody. Well, the guy... From HeroQuest certainly would. Because the only true way to expand HeroQuest is with more HeroQuest. But I guess, so the big question then is with Mazes and Monsters, with Jack Chick's Dark Dungeons, and with Lizzie McGuire and Recess, the different perspectives on D&D over the ages, why did people react so negatively about something so inherently not dangerous? With as to why D and D, so that question is surprisingly, I'd say, like complex. And I've read through some think pieces, namely from New York Times, um, DiceBreakers dot com. Apparently, is a site that I didn't know about before reading it, and Polygon. And they go into the history of what was going on at the time and what all happened. Namely, stuff that we've already talked about in this episode uh, just so far. But they go on to describe the culture of America at the time. About the late 60s, early 70s, the introduction for America of serial killers 
obviously serial killers have literally always been a thing, but the news started to report uh, and go into these things, like the infamous story about the Mansons and Ted Bundy. In fact, Ted Bundy's court case was the first one that was ever televised. This was something that was going around a lot, where Americans who always felt like the world was generally a safe place after World War II, and that their streets were safe. Sure, other parts of the world were terrible, but America, their streets were safe. And they were finding out that, no, America isn't some perfect country where nothing bad ever happens. And there is just as much evil here as there is elsewhere. The introduction of more movies like The Exorcist really, really got them thinking more about the world around them. Mm-hmm. When the public suddenly learns about something, the first feeling tends to be fear. <laughs> People don't like yeah. new things. Definitely. And with D&D, that was really no different. These sort of just circumstantial links to something, essentially just making this crap up as they went, based on just casual glances. Because if you look at Dungeons and Dragons, especially back then, the covers of the books and the Dragon Magazine, which was the official, like, essentially newsletter for D&D at the time, there were a lot of depictions on the covers of monsters and demons. In fact, when a child disappeared that month the dragon magazine was titled could it be satan <laughs> and had, like all had the in-game information for how to run satan in your game and when you open up the monster manual inside there's devils and demons, including the infamous Demogorgon from Stranger Things and Ooh. the old Paradise Lost. So, yeah, when parents opened up these books that their children had, there were these depictions of these monsters, these demons that they were clearly labeled as demons and devils. One important distinction to make here is from the very beginning, Gary Gygax, the creator, ostensibly, of D&D, was very staunch against, you can have these depictions of demons and devils, but they had to be portrayed in an evil light as something to be defeated. And something like angels, for instance, could not be depicted as something that you fight. Yeah. That makes sense. And while that's changed over the years as to where in the 5th edition Monster Manual, there are angels in there now with stat blocks. Uh, so you can fight them if you wish. Uh, that's in the base Monster Manual. A large amount of the public suddenly knew about something called Dungeons and & Dragons. And 
horrible things that happen to individuals who have played the game didn't look into what the game actually was. One woman, uh, one mother uh, from one of these children, uh, formed this bothered about Dungeons and Dragons group, uh, calling their group bad um, was certainly a choice. <laughs> you know they're really bad. Yeah, and they went on and blasted uh, the game on TV in Christian Outlook, but. The reason I've talked about all of this for so long is because that statement that I keep throwing out. A lot of people. A lot of people is not all people. A lot of other people had friends, family, co-workers who talked to them about the game and told them what it was about. A lot of people did their own research on the matter and made their own opinions. And a lot of people just did not care or even hear about it. And if there's anything that news outlets excel at, it's blowing things out of proportion. And which turns into this self-fulfilling cycle with people with loud voices hearing about these things and then further blowing them out of proportion. And talking about our um, different experiences with it, for me, both of my parents played Dungeons & Dragons near this time. Separately, uh, they did not know each other before they played D&D. I have incredibly nerdy parents. And so I talked to them both about this, and they both told me that their parents did not care. And I am living in the most Bible belt of the Bible belt. If there is going to be a group of people who truly were worried about this, it'd be people in my area. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, my grandparents just did not care. They trusted that my parents knew what they were doing and that they were going to go crazy. And I feel like that's how it was for a lot of people. But because of those loud voices and the prevalence of these news articles, again, I'm in my late 20s. Obviously, I wasn't here at the time. But I can't help but feel that the amount of hatred that was actually put at D&D isn't as great as we might today think it was. Of course, it was still that. Do not get me wrong. Well, it is interesting to hear you say that, that you weren't affected by that backlash within your generations. Whereas I I was, I had a bit of... um, yeah, so I was always into fantasy and stuff, and as a kid, I liked video games, and my parents got us video games. My parents were very pro-technology, but when it came to D&D, they were a little bit opposed, and I say that in the sense of, like, I went to Barnes & Noble with my mom regularly. They encouraged me to read, and I would look at, like, Magic the Gathering novels and be like, oh, yeah, magical stuff. Yeah, it's fun, and then I'd be over there, and I'd notice dungeons and dragons well huh i saw that one lizzie mcguire episode and i've seen that recess episode like three or four times huh well i'll crack this open i uh, cracked open the player's handbook third edition and I, I just opened up to like the racist pages where it's like so this is what makes a dwarf and this is what makes a gnome and elves have these powers and i'm like oh my gosh numbers <laughs> 
numbers make me happy i've i re- i i was like i absolutely love this and my mom came over and i'm like i think i can i get this is can i get this instead of a book my mom was like no 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 i don't think this is for you adam and i said okay and i put the book on on the the display and walked out and i felt sad but flash forward a few years then i was at a friend's house we were playing a dnd based playstation 2 game and we were stuck at a point and we're like, how do we get past this point? And he's like, Oh yeah, I have these books under my bed. He went up and grabbed these books from literally under his bed. And I looked at them and they were the same books, but like the complete set. And I was like, Oh my gosh, let's look through <laughs> these for numbers. We solved our situation. But at, at the end of like the, the hangout, I was like, can I borrow one of these books? And he's like, yeah, you can just have them. I'm like, I can have one of them. He said, no, 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 you can have the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, Monster Manual 1, Monster Manual 2. Great. So <laughs> th- that that's my bootleg start to D&D, is I got these books against my parents' wishes, and I dived so deep into it. And I remember there was one time where my parents had accepted that I was into it and everything, and I didn't have a like a consistent group at that point. I was still trying to like find people who would play this game with me, but I was still interested in reading about it, writing about it, and stuff like that. And my dad came into my room one point and sat on my bed, and I was like, oh boy, howdy. My dad's taking an interest in my creative like method, and he's going to be here, and he'll ask me questions about what I'm writing about. And he said, Adam, your mom and I are worried about you. Uh, that immediately was like no 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 don't don't be worried like we're just really concerned that you're into this thing and we don't want you to commit suicide like no but no 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 i'm i'm writing i'm having a good time this is this is a good time for me i'm having like this is no no bad feelings are being had but it didn't work it's just like we've heard that people get into this and they get really into it and then they kill themselves. I'm like, but, but I I didn't have the ability to communicate, so it was just mm-hmm. I'm me looking down at the floor, being like. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, there's no reason. And so this story has a good turnaround because once I finally got friends who are like, yeah, let, let's play dice, and oh, we love dice. Oh, because we like Lord of the Rings. Oh, I can play a ranger. <laughs> okay, cool. And my parents said that they listened to me and my friends laughing and howling with laughter for hours and being like, there's no way these people are going to kill themselves. <laughs> like a bunch of teenagers giggling for hours and hours is not, not a, not a bad thing. And so that's why like on the one hand I get the concern, but on the other hand in healthy situations or even like situations that are just teenagers making mediocre stories, it's, not that bad. It's when there's a power struggle. Because in Jack Chick's Dark Dungeons, there is a power struggle with the character there. Like, there's a person who's a teacher who is able to be like, no, I can revoke your ability to have a character. You're done. Be gone. Right. And I don't think that's a healthy relationship. Like, health, unhealthy relationships are what make people, like, get into problematic situations. And so, I don't know. I, I like your perspective on everything. And my perspective feels a little bit more flawed in a sense, because I looked at it as a divorce from traditional social institutions rather than the more obvious 
serial killer like popularization and as you said like serial killers were introduced at that point when did slasher movies become popular hmm when did people Early start finding 80s. out about cults yeah and like Marilyn Ma- or, sorry uh, what's his name? <laughs> god it's not Marilyn Manson god. <laughs> Charles Manson like I feel like a big thing with it was a concern by social institutions that people would divorce themselves from them and the two that I thought of church and factories like that was the two big things that I could think of offhand were like places where you would want your people to be unquestioningly loyal and believing that power to change is not in their hands. You know, like you want your workers being docile and being like, yeah, we're doing this. And I feel like there's an unwarranted concern that, oh, well, if we let them think, oh, you can level up easily, unskilled labor might rise up and be like, well, we should be making progress rather than toiling. And I guess the same with like the church historically is you should not be questioning your pastor. And I feel like that's a big part of D&D is fostering social groups outside of the major institutions of like work or church or maybe even home life. Oh, are we talking about third place? I don't know. <laughs> but, like Fostering a social group that encourages creative problem solving, incremental improvement in your life and taking control of your own destiny. Like tell me D and D at its core isn't about embracing destiny and trying to make something better. It, it should be making your life better. And the, the movie mazes and monsters that we're talking about does mirror that. Like he goes down the element of like, Oh, great hall is telling me to improve my level. I need to, Break up with my girlfriend. Right. And so it's like, it, they get that there should be changes, but they're like, oh no, it should be bad changes. And I feel like D&D, like at its core, is every change is positive. You level up and you don't lose skills. You level up and you gain skills. Or, or well, that's not uh, in third edition, I guess. In fifth edition, you, you level up and you get hit points. You, you gain something. <laughs> new spells, new abilities. You don't lose stuff. You gain. And I feel like that's the fundamental part that, like, a lot of these parodies, perhaps, or whatever, like, just, they, they lose that. And, and I guess I, I, I just can't help but feel like there is some pressure from social institutions. What is actually behind that media reporting it? making it a big deal is it actually sensationalism or is it institutions actually having influence being like we want this to be brought down i do think it is mostly sensationalism just whatever gets them like the most views and whatnot but it was definitely a thing with like churches uh at the time where like pastors would like warn stuff like D D. Some even straight up name dropped D and D as an evil thing to warn the people, and that was definitely a thing back then for sure, which did contribute as well. The church I go to is very traditional. It's still Protestant, but it's very traditional in its views. There's been a slow cultural shift that's been going on that. Not just my church, but 
churches in America, from what I've gathered, to the point now where my church is at this very moment getting a group together to play Dungeons and Dragons. The preacher for my church is getting involved in it. There's definitely been more of an acceptance as time has gone on, as people realize that D&D obviously is not evil. We say obviously, we know that now. Like, I, I mean, yeah. you and I, we we looked at the player's handbook and we're like, yeah, it's clearly not evil. This is fun math. This is yeah, this is accounting, but fantasy, fantasy accounting. Yeah, I will say though, like factory uh, offices, I'll say, I'll go out on a limb and say that Super. capitalists, if they could, they would strip us from literally all entertainment. And make us work 16 hours a day. 16? Why stop there? I mean, why not just pump you full of stimulants and make you work 20? I don't know where I was going with that. I just like Yeah, we can't end on that. (laughs) (laughs) I just like bashing capitalists. Yeah, well, I think we're the same there. There's a lot of messed up things with our society. And you know what? D&D is not one of the things that is messed up. Tabletop games are not messed up. D and D is a little messed up at the moment, but yeah, sure, okay, yeah. But tabletop games are not bad. It's a scapegoat that is taken advantage of when there's a lot more things. But the big point that I wanted to make though is that it's, you always have to look further than the surface things. Oh, he played a violent video game. Oh, he played tabletop RPGs. Oh, he liked the movie Begotten. <laughs> that, that doesn't make you a serial killer. Yes, there, there's a lot wrong with our society that we live in. And like you said, tabletop gaming, D&D, it's not one of them. It is escapist fantasy. It's fantasy. Just like a lot of video games, just like movies, comic books, TV shows. Lord knows the amount of people that sat down every single week to watch the newest episode of Game of Thrones back when that was popular. And there's not a single person who thought, oh wow, this is real. It is good that we have these things and is just another one of them yeah when you can write your own stories and you can go into unique stories with your friends i think that has more of an influence than just watching a tv show that perhaps many other people watch uh, it, or maybe not more of an influence just more of a impact personally for sure yeah i'd agree with that i've been playing D&D off and on for over 10 years now. My wife does not get it. (laughs) She wonders why I stay up so late once a week when I can uh, to play D&D online with friends. It is important to me. It's not just like a game. It's not even just like a collaborative story. It's socializing. It is how I make friends and keep in touch with them. It has been for a very long time. A, a pro tip, if you're at a party and you're like, you, your sister has her, her boyfriend there and the boyfriend's like, yeah, do, do, do stuff. If you really don't want to talk, just ask a D&D person, hey, tell me about the campaign you're in. That's a very good point. 
they'll literally just start talking. You don't need to listen to anything because none of the details could be remembered. They'll just be like, oh, but yeah, well, yeah, on Saturdays I'm in my <laughs> campaign in Zithantheon and like my 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 elven paladin <laughs> you'll understand some things but they'll just go on and you can just be nodding and be like oh that's crazy that's crazy bonus points you ask a gm about their campaign they'll be like okay well first i gotta talk about the theology you can be like okay yeah but at least dms have no one else to talk about it to <laughs> so you're doing someone a favor you're always doing them a favor. Nobody ever is like, oh, I don't want to talk about my D&D campaign. That, that's personal. Nobody's ever like, oh, yeah, well, I don't want to talk about my Saturday game. Just, I didn't do anything. I stood in the corner. Like, some people might be bashful and be like, yeah, well, it's not that interesting. And it isn't. But the, the question is just to, you know, buy time and talk. Like, it, it's something a person is passionate about. And I feel like that can be enjoyed. In many different ways. So, what we're saying is, Mazes and Monsters is a stupid movie uh, written by people who know literally nothing about the source material who try to capitalize on the unfortunate suicide of a minor. And there's a reason that the only people who remember this movie are ones who are going back to the IMDb page for Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible movie and i'm actually proud of myself correct me if i'm wrong when you edit this that i did not complain as much as i wanted to about this god it's just it's a terrible movie it's so poorly lit poorly written poorly paced the stupid one song like i, I don't know why so many made for tv movies are like oh we can either have a soundtrack or we can have one original song and that original song will either be terrible 80 percent of the time or okay 20 percent of the time i don't know who funds these and it makes me angry i took i took this movie personally so adam yeah. what do you give this movie what rating i give it a two out of ten because it did have a plot it tried at what it wanted to do but it ultimately failed on basically everything uh, audio wise i just said yeah only one song and the song's not great it's aggressive jazz in my opinion and that was terrible uh, so the, the the audio is not great the visuals is not great it's dark everywhere there is a plot that's the bare bones of a movie at least but i didn't care about any characters I had to look back at the movie multiple times to be able to come up with who the four characters were. And I didn't even find out what half of those characters played beyond their GM role in, in the game. Like, you get the main character, that's obvious. And I felt like I was smart for picking up that Kate Finch was playing the warrior. It's just, the movie begs you to look away. <laughs> the, I, I got so angry at the point where Kate Finch, girl, is in the caves and, like, screaming... JJ or Daniel or whoever she's looking for I don't know she's calling for somebody and I threw a blanket on my head because everything was dark and she was just screaming for minutes and I just told my wife I can't do this anymore and she said well hold on I think we're not that we're close to the end oh okay we got like an hour more <laughs> I'm just like oh my gosh I need a break I can't take this 
don't watch this. Nobody watch this movie. Even if only, even if you only cut a few minutes off of this recording, you've still saved time. So, I think you really hit the nail on the head there. I really couldn't explain better why this movie fails in <laughs> every single regard. Uh, the one thing that I thought that it did well with the cold opening, it betrayed by how everything was after yes so this is why this is my first one out of ten oh a one out of ten there is nothing redeemable about this film (laughs) i'm with you it's not worth watching it's not even like bad in a way that's it's not don't watch it it's so bad for real Oh, uh, I guess should mention Tom Hanks. He's in this movie. If you didn't, if you didn't know, he doesn't give a particularly arresting performance. I mean, he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. Everyone in it is fine. One out of ten. Yeah, there's the acting is not interesting. It's it's not even like campy to a degree where it's like, oh my gosh, he's being super silly. It's just everything is boring, plain, uh, amateur. Yeah, if they were overacting at parts or something, or like you know entertaining, then maybe this have gotten a negative one or a negative two. Yeah, but no, just a one, just a one out. It was unpleasant to watch. Trash. I had to take a break. Unpleasant. Like halfway through the movie, I had to take an angry break where I literally went to Discord and I messaged you how angry I was, while my <laughs> wife waited in the other room for me to cool off. <laughs> so that's. One point uh, in the favor of me watching on YouTube. Don't watch this on YouTube. It's not worth it. With it being brighter, I was able to see everything, so I wasn't as annoyed by that. But I still had to adjust as the movie went on, especially once it got to New York. Like I just like fell over in my seat. It's like, oh, God. Can the movie be done now? Get on with it! <laughs> yeah. I think we've been through our own mazes and monsters here tonight. The real mazes and monsters was the friends who made it along the way. <laughs> oh, Lord. Lord Almighty, heaven on earth. Which is not touched by mazes yeah. and monsters and their demon ilk. This was a trial to sit through. And then it was a trial to sit through a second time for me to write the plot. <laughs> okay, so you know my my uh, pains now is that's how I went with movies. Is I I watch it and I'd be like, okay, I walk. I'm gonna write down the plot. Oh, I don't remember everything. Let me watch it through again. Like I meant to like write down like what I was doing. I, sorry, what I was doing. Man, I wish that had been more entertaining than what was going on in. Yeah, that already sounds better. <laughs> yeah, like I had a sandwich. <laughs> no, I I meant to write out what was happening in the movie as I watched it the first time. I I think with with the process, like you really need to watch the movie like on its own to be able to understand like the big things of it, and then watching it a second time helps take notes and be like, these are the specific things and these are the themes that they were going through. So and... we have seen this movie combined four times. Oh, no. One time is infinitely too. Yeah. Oh, man. We need to end this on a positive note. Like, 
At least I didn't spill my popcorn on myself in the movie theater. No, that's, we're not in a movie theater watching this together. <laughs> Why would I say that? So, Pickles, there's a lot of movies that I do not like that I'd be willing to sit in a theater with you and watch. This is not Yeah, one. this is not one of them. This is the movie where it's like, can we watch anything else, please? Literally anything else. Evil Bong? Oh, I'd rather evil. Maybe next month, guys. Uh, next month is gonna be maybe. April. I don't know if there's a, a marijuana themed thing uh, in April, but maybe we'll do something here on. And I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> Starring Adam and Brad. And Brad. Brad, you're Brad. Brad, you're Brad. And you're Adam. I'm Adam. Yeah, my character is Adam. Obviously, and your your character's Brad. Uh, what's the song that they had? Friends of this world. Friends of this world. 